We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to bring you this special Datages update. For those of you tuning in to catch the second half of the interview with Mark Goulston, don't worry. We'll be back with Dr. Goulston next week, and you'll see his wisdom throughout this episode as well. For Thanksgiving week and our first anniversary of the Datages podcast, we bring you this special two-part solo cast episode of Datages. Enjoy. Friends and family, welcome to Datages. This week's two-part episode is going to land a bit differently. Most of our content here on Datages is what my production team refers to as evergreen. It's not tied to specific current events and instead focuses mostly on broader universal topics that can be applied to all of our lives at any time. While today we'll provide similar evergreen content, along with advice and perspective that can be applied to your life at any time, it is rooted in current events. There are deadly wars going on around the world, but there's a war being waged here in the United States as well. Do you know what war I'm talking about? Probably not, but we'll get to that in a minute. As I speak to you, a war rages in Gaza. There is tragic loss of life that is mounting as Israel continues to shift from bombardment into activities on the ground intended to extract and destroy Hamas in its entirety in response to the horrific attacks executed by Hamas in Israel on October 7th. As I say these words, I pause for two moments. The first moment is to reflect upon this tragedy and to mourn the loss of life and destruction of home for all people impacted by this conflict. Now, I pause for a second moment. This moment is not reserved for anyone but you. I want to pay respect to all of you and the emotions you may be feeling. What was your reaction when I said these words a moment ago? Listen to them again. Take stock. Give yourself room to experience any emotional reaction you may be having just beneath the surface or perhaps deeply and viscerally. What do you experience when I say war rages in Gaza, Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip, destroy Hamas, terrorist attacks in Israel? These are all charged words, and it is nearly impossible for us not to experience something. Can you put to words your feelings? Can you out loud, whether sitting at home or in your car, give voice to exactly what you're feeling. See if any of these words capture anything you might be feeling. Anger, rage, fear, sadness, guilt, remorse, confusion. Thank you for taking a moment for the victims on the other side of the world. And thank you for taking a moment for yourself. And thank you for sharing that with me and with the other members of the Dadages friends and family. I respect and honor your feelings, and I hope that we can all be here together, if not in person, at least in spirit, energy, and respect for one another in these difficult times. If you found this exercise helpful, you can thank our guest and member of the Datages friends and family, Dr. Mark Goulston, whose interview I've rudely interrupted this week. And to make it up to him, I encourage you to get to Amazon immediately and buy his amazing book, Just Listen. We'll put a link in the bulletin board on datages.com. I hope that you found that exercise both empowering and calming. I'm going to ask you to hold on to that strength and that calm because today may be a bumpy ride. We're going to talk about topics that are not only current, but are raw and supercharged with emotion and, and strong feelings for nearly everyone. 
And we aren't just going to focus on events on the other side of the world. We're going to bring this discussion to the home front. We'll be talking about the war here in America. A moment ago, you may have been guessing as to what I meant by that. Were you thinking about the ideological conflict here in the U.S. between supporters of Israel and supporters of Palestine? Sure, that's a real thing, but nothing new here in the United States. We are a diverse culture with multiple viewpoints on world affairs. Not really Datages material per se. Perhaps those of you who have been a part of the Datages friends and family took it a bit deeper and thought about the polarization of our country and the conflict between the extreme right and the extreme left on seemingly every issue in our society, which has been exacerbated by our siloed and reinforced opinion farms in the social media ecosystem. Now you're getting warmer, but you aren't quite there yet. The real war I want to focus on in today's episode is not a war between the left and the right. It's the destructive war being waged by both extremes against the middle, extremism versus centrism. And does it shock you to know that I've got a datage ready for you? Here it is. Extremists paint compromise as weakness because they know it is the only force strong enough to defeat them. Listen again. Extremists paint compromise as weakness because they know it is the only force strong enough to defeat them. This is a complex point, but let's spend some time together on this subject today. And perhaps by the end of this discussion over the next couple of days, we can revisit this notion and gain better understanding together. Before we talk about the new American civil war between extremism and centrism, let's first take some time to talk about the Israel-Hamas conflict today. Put it into a broader historical and regional context, and also think about how the conflict is being presented to and experienced by those of us here in the United States. Let me say two things up front. First, it would take a year of intensive study to do any real justice to this complicated subject. I'm not attempting to write a doctoral thesis. I'm just going to provide a brief overview for some background context. Second, I'm not purporting to be an expert. I'm just sharing a few elements of my study on this topic so we have a baseline for the rest of our discussion today. I will tell you now that everything you're about to hear is fraught with oversimplification. Religious, ideological, and military conflict has waged in the Middle East for thousands of years. It is not just Jews and Muslims that have been at odds. There are multiple religions, cultures, nations, factions, peoples who have been in conflict and at each other's throats in this region throughout history. Over the last couple of centuries, though, there were examples throughout the Middle East and Africa of Jews and Muslims coexisting in relative peace. Much of the 20th century conflict in the region was not directly instigated by Jews and Arabs against one another, Rather, it's rooted in the two greatest global conflicts of the century that redrew many maps of the entire world as the result of European colonization centuries prior and sweeping treaties and negotiated decisions led by European powers that made African and Middle Eastern nations pieces on a giant chessboard. After England drove the Ottoman Turks out of the region comprising Israel and Palestine today at the close of World War I, the League of Nations established the Mandate for Palestine, which was signed into effect by the British in 1920, creating a Palestinian state. At that time, Muslims, Jews, and Christians all coexisted in Palestine, with Arab Muslims representing the majority of the population. But prior to that, in 1917, 
the British had also signed the Balfour Declaration, providing their support for a Jewish national home in Palestine, a concept that's been pervasive themed in the Jewish religion dating all the way back to approximately 600 BC when the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem by the Babylonians following their conquest, which included the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. And in response to the Balfour Declaration, granting acknowledgement of the Jewish home state of Israel in Palestine, the first Palestinian conference of 1919 issued its anti-Zionist manifesto, which essentially said that the Jews living in Palestine at that time were very welcome in Palestine, but they rejected the notion of more Jews migrating en masse to Palestine thereafter. The moment when everything changed, though, and Israel slash Palestine became the epicenter of regional and worldwide conflict between Jews and Muslims occurred after the Second World War in 1948. Europe was looking for a solution to the Jewish refugee crisis created by the Holocaust. Centuries-old Jewish doctrine identified Zion, modern-day Israel, as that homeland. Britain was required by the newly formed United Nations to end the period of the mandate for Palestine and return its colonial control, and the entire West was fearing Soviet control over the Middle East at the dawn of the new Cold War era. Powerful forces at hand, for sure. The world powers aligned, driven by these forces, with little or no real basis in the Middle East to formally establish the Jewish state of Israel in its present location. We've talked before on datages in the episode, just because you can do something doesn't mean you can, about the notion that there is no such thing as a perfect decision. Every decision in life has positive and negative consequences. The formation of Israel is an extreme example of this. The critical date in this whole process was May 15, 1948 when Britain handed over Israel to the Jews. Israelis consider this Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the Day of Independence. Palestinian Muslims refer to the same date as Nakba, or the catastrophe. What precipitated thereafter was the Arab-Israeli War of 1948, in which Arab armies from Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia fought against the Israelis. This was just the first of many armed conflicts of varying size, length, and intensity that have occurred in this region in every decade since the formation of Israel. These conflicts are too numerous and complex to try to cover them all here today. Throughout nearly a century of conflict during the modern era of Israel and Palestine, there has always existed the notion of a centrist compromise position. We hear the term a lot these days, actually, the two-state solution. This is the notion of a formally recognized Israel and a formally recognized Palestinian state, but it has never materialized. It has never been able to take hold. Why? This is where we come back to today's datage. Extremists paint compromise as weakness because they know it is the only force strong enough to defeat them. The Arab-Israeli conflict made extremism a force well before its time. I can think of no conflict in the last century that has been more characterized by extremism than this one. Let's take some time to look more closely at this. In an article in Vox, published in October 2023, entitled How the Arab World Sees the Israel-Palestine Conflict, 
Jonathan Geyer, who is an award-winning senior foreign policy writer, shared this perspective from Juan Rabani, an analyst of Palestinian politics, to explain why Palestine galvanizes the Arab world. Support from Arab leaders is rooted in a history of grassroots support for Palestinians and of Arab strongmen using the cause as a populist rallying point. It is the open wound, the festering sore on the Arab conscience. When you go back to the 1950s and the 1960s, the heyday of Arab nationalism, Palestine was the central Arab cause, so much so that many Arab leaders could use it, instrumentalize it, and exploit it to either help them achieve power or stay in power or improve their popularity at home. But all of this is a 20th century perspective. Let's zoom in more closely on the 21st century. Let's look at how things have changed just in the last two decades and how this war and even the horrific and inexcusable events of the Hamas attacks on Israel on October 7th, 2023 were not an isolated incident, but part of a lengthy downward spiral in the region fueled by hyperpolarization of the conflict that had been simmering before it boiled over in violence and terror. Israel in the past few years, not unlike America, Britain, and many other democracies of the world, has been torn apart by internal political strife and a climate where polarization of their government has led to the empowerment of the extremes. Benjamin Netanyahu is seen as a strong nationalist right-wing leader whose cabinet and party house ultra-nationalist members. According to a story published in Reuters in March of this year, after a Palestinian gun attack killed two Israelis in a village called Huara in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, the Israeli finance minister responded by saying, I think that Huara needs to be erased. I think that the state of Israel needs to do it. And just this month, a member of the Netanyahu cabinet actually had to be dismissed after saying in a radio interview that the use of nuclear weapons in the conflict in Gaza was, quote, one of the possibilities. These kind of right-wing perspectives have been growing within the Israeli government over the past few years. And the tension has trended upward in the Palestinian territories of Gaza and the West Bank, as Netanyahu and his party have shored up their base of support by continuing a nationalist narrative that diminishes the Palestinians further and demonizes anyone who might take up the Palestinian cause on the international political stage. Does this sound frighteningly familiar to any of you who spend any time following American politics? Let's look at a couple of other examples of polarization. Many of these can be found in the war being fought with information, competing for the hearts and minds of the Middle East and the people around the world, more so than in a military conflict fought on the battlefield. Here's an example. Zionist. Is that an insult? Is it a derogatory term? I understand how you might think so. It is used as one more and more in recent years. Let's turn to our friends at the Oxford English Dictionary for some help. Oxford defines a Zionist as a person who believes in the development and protection of a Jewish nation in what is now Israel. Being a Zionist doesn't make someone anti-Palestinian or an oppressor. These connotations have been subtly and pervasively added into the term Zionist to fuel negativity around anyone who identifies as a supporter of Israel in any way, shape, or form. These connotations have been subtly and pervasively added into the term Zionist to fuel negativity around anyone who identifies as a supporter of Israel in any way, shape, or form. 
While these foundations of ultranationalism and polarization have been taking root around the region and the world, Hamas has been consolidating power in Palestinian territories and strengthening its position throughout the Arab world and beyond. There has been a global effort to cast the Palestinian cause as a decolonization narrative. What does that mean? I'll confess, this is well outside of my historical expertise. So I'm going to lean on award-winning British historian, Simon Sabag Montefiore, who shared the following in an article he published in The Atlantic on October 27th. The decolonization narrative has dehumanized Israelis to the extent that otherwise rational people excuse, deny, or support barbarity. It holds that Israel is an imperialist colonialist force, that Israelis are settler colonialists, and that Palestinians have a right to eliminate their oppressors. On October 7th, we all learned what that meant. It casts Israelis as white or white adjacent and Palestinians as people of color. This ideology sees history through a concept of race that derives from the American experience. The argument is that it is impossible for the oppressed to be themselves racist, just as it is impossible for an oppressor to be the subject of racism. Jews, therefore, cannot suffer racism because they are regarded as white and privileged. Although they cannot be victims, they exploit other less privileged people in the Middle East through colonialism. Montefiore goes on to explain how anti-Semitic messaging is taking hold in subtle, ubiquitous ways that sometimes aren't even recognized by the individuals embracing and trumpeting that messaging. Have you heard, for example, even here in the United States, chants of, from the river to the sea? This sounds so innocent, perhaps even idealistic. As Montefiore explains, this is a chilling phrase that implicitly endorses the killing of the 9 million Israelis. According to the Anti-Defamation League, this rallying cry has long been used by anti-Israel voices, including supporters of terrorist organizations such as Hamas and the PFLP, which seek Israel's destruction through violent means. According to Montefiore and others, this chant is not so much pro-Palestinian as many people believe. It is anti-Israeli, calling for the end of their existence. And this slogan has indeed been adopted by Hamas to mean exactly that. But as with all sides of these issues, there are many truths existing all at once. According to Maha Nassar, who is a professor of Middle Eastern history at the University of Arizona, when Palestinians are using that phrase, it is a very personal one for them. They're saying, I identify with my ancestral home in Palestine, even if it is not on a map today. Interesting duality of perspective, for sure. Let's pose a different question. How is it that Hamas, which is comprised of Palestinians who find themselves in such dire straits, is able to exercise military influence regionally and information campaigns globally? The answer is that they're not doing it alone. The key is to understand the proxy war being fought by Iran. And when I refer to Iran, please know that I'm not referring to the people of Iran. I'm referring to the current regime in Iran called the Islamic Republic of Iran and its special military force known as the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or IRGC. Iran is pretty much the definition of extremism. They sit in opposition not only to Israel, but also to many other Muslim nations and peoples throughout the Middle East. It has been in Iran's best interest to maintain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
and to directly sponsor extreme paramilitary factions throughout the Middle East, including Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Houthi militia in Yemen. All of these extremist groups are either already making limited strikes against Israel or aligning to join the conflict at a moment's notice. It is Iran which has the resources to fight a war of disinformation as well and to stir hyperpolarization worldwide to further destabilize the Middle East. It is in Iran's direct interest to derail normalization of relations between Israel and its other neighbors in the Middle East, such as Saudi Arabia as well. It is difficult to really establish any limits to the extent of the Iranian participation in promoting conflict with Israel, particularly in fighting the battle over information in the social media age. Think of the influence that Russia exerted on the United States during the last election cycle, and then multiply that times hatred and raise it to the power of centuries. After spending considerable time thinking about this subject and studying it from as many angles as I can, Here's the position I would like to share with you regarding my personal viewpoint on the conflict between Israel and Palestine over the past century. I find myself feeling sorrow, compassion, and understanding for Israeli Jews and for Palestinian Arabs and for the entire spectrum of other inhabitants of the region not properly identified by these limiting terms. I think all of these peoples are the victims of a worldwide power struggle rooted in European colonialism and promises made and not kept to all of the peoples of Israel and Palestine. Their conflict, the ongoing loss of life, and the constant fear, loss, rage, and sorrow to which they have been subjected has been fueled by world powers, exploiting them in order to pursue power, control, and the advancement of other agenda that ignore the welfare of the inhabitants of this region. While the American people may not fully understand the dynamics, I assure you, the U.S. government is certainly not above reproach on this topic. Can I be a Zionist who believes that the Israeli people and my fellow Jews have a right to a homeland in Israel, while also being a supporter of a two-state solution in which the Palestinian people are entitled to their own land and their own government? I believe so. I'm also not foolish enough to think that this perspective can be universally popular just because it seems just and logical to me. I know that by stating such a centrist perspective, I open myself to criticism from those who are staunchly aligned on both sides of this tumultuous issue. I can accept that, and I do not dispute their right to remain steadfastly on one side of the issue or the other. So, am I alone in this? Is this centrism and the potential for reason completely destroyed in the Middle East? Not yet, but it's hanging on by subtle threads. There are leaders in the Middle East who have risen above the most contentious periods of conflict to seek a pathway to resolution and call out extremism. Just a couple of weeks ago, these words were shared. I categorically condemn Hamas's targeting of civilians. I also condemn Hamas for giving the higher moral ground to an Israeli government that is universally shunned even by half of the Israeli public. I condemn Hamas for sabotaging the attempt of Saudi Arabia to reach a peaceful resolution to the plight of the Palestinian people. That perspective came from Saudi veteran statesman, Prince Turki bin Faisal. And another such example, listen to these words. I believe we've arrived at the root of the problem. We have learned that our rejection of you will not bring us freedom. 
you can see that your control of us will not bring you security. We must live side by side in peace, equality, and cooperation. Who said that? Abu Allah, one of the lead Palestinian negotiators in the drafting of the Oslo Accords in 1993, culminating with a famous and inspiring handshake between Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO leader Yasser Arafat, with President Clinton standing behind both men, arms outstretched in unity. We'll post this famous photo on the Datages bulletin board if you want to check it out. This was definitely a high point in the Middle East relations over the last century and a time that the United States took a lead role in the region. I remember the sense of positivity I felt at that time. There was the sense that if we could take steps towards solving a centuries-old conflict, that there was nothing we couldn't do. While I was not often aligned with President Clinton's political views, nor certainly with some of his more questionable ethical decisions, he may have been one of the last great uniters to serve as American president. With that, we will pause. Don't worry, you won't have to wait for long for the rest of this Datage's Thanksgiving special. If you're watching or listening in real time, you'll be able to check out the second half tomorrow on Thanksgiving Day. And until tomorrow, remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does.